welcome to a very special episode of In Check with Fintech recorded at Web Summit 2023 in Lisbon. What makes this episode even more special is that today we have the pleasure to be joined by two powerful women in leadership positions, Sarah Clark and Emily Tate. In the first part of the podcast, our CEO, Rahir Hupo von der Ford, sits down with Sarah Clark, CEO at eGates. Sarah brings extensive experience in a variety of industries, including travel, retail, financial services, fintech, and e-commerce across Europe, the US, Middle East, and Africa, as well as a proven ability to drive growth in complex environments. Prior to joining eGates IO, Sarah was General Manager of Europe at Clearco, a SoftBank-backed revenue-based finance business. Previously, Sarah was General Manager for Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa at PayPal, the world's largest online payment provider. She has also held a variety of commercial positions with Barclays Bank, The Virgin Group, Sainsbury's and British Airways. Enjoy listening. Great, Sarah. Well, welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to meet you here at the Web Summit. Indeed, indeed. We are at day, well, two, some, well, yeah, some say three, yeah, two and a half. I don't know what it is exactly. Yeah, something two, three-ish kind of. Yes. How's it been for you this far? It's been great. And this is actually my first ever Web Summit. So uh, so I don't have a basis of comparison, but it is, I mean, it is full on. Um, there are so many people. It is so huge. I got lost twice yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so just finding our stand, I view as a victory, really. But yeah, no, it's been great. Really interesting conversations and things. So yeah. Good. All right. So, okay. And the stand itself, has it been fruitful? It has. It's, it's been interesting. Um, so we've had quite good footfall yeah. um, and uh, quite interesting discussions with people as well. So that's been good. That's good. All right. Okay. And you're obviously CEO of eGates, right? For the past nine months? Not even. Probably six. Six maybe, months. All right. Yeah. Okay. For those who don't know, I don't. What does eGates do as a bit? I'm shocked and appalled. Um, so we are a platform that spans between um, fiat payments and crypto payments yeah. um, and we're kind of a one-stop shop that enables both SSA fiat crypto payments but also KYC, KYB, AML monitoring as well as cross-chain bridging and vesting in a variety of services so customers can access all of these from a single integration, a single contract point um, and we're able to aggregate volumes and deliver super competitive prices um, as a result. So it's it's quite a, a unique proposition, I think, in the market. Cross-chain sounds like cross-border 5.0. <laughs> Yes, if only. At the moment, this is you know it's moving from Ethereum to Bitcoin and those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah. But yes, we'll 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 see how it evolves. Okay, yeah. And you've been with some well-known brands, right? Virgin, PayPal, yes, several others as well. Yes, yeah. How have you viewed these? Because it's been an interesting time specifically for fintech, right? Over yes. the past twelve Indeed. months, four years, we had the bubble, we had the crash. So now we're here. How have you viewed these last twelve months? Um, it's really interesting because, I, as you say, so I've worked in some kind of old school fintechs. I was global head of strategy at PayPal and oversaw the IPO spinoff from eBay, you know, the start of the heyday, really, of fintech. Um, and then uh, just prior to joining eGates, I led the European expansion of a Canadian fintech called ClearCo, which is backed by SoftBank that ra raised more than $600 million over seven years. Um, but came into the fintech winter um, and when they went to raise again life had changed yeah. 
Um, and as a consequence, they decided to refocus on North America. And I, so I had to shut everything down in Europe. I had a colleague in Australia to shut everything down. Um, and actually, interestingly, I also sit on the board of a venture capital trust in the UK, which invests not only in fintech, but in growth businesses in general. Um, and uh, it's been interesting to see it from the investor standpoint, as well as the investee. And I think, you know, there was genuinely a bubble and a lot of money was flowing into the ecosystem. And I can say from my own experience at ClearCo and to give everyone their credit, our investors were pushing us for growth at all costs. And yeah. that's how the business was built. It was not built with a clear path to profitability. Um, and they were just raising and raising and raising and spending and spending and spending. Um, and that isn't sustainable, quite frankly, <laughs> shockingly. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of players have had to pivot um, and really focus on unit economics and ensuring that they are solving a genuine problem and that there is a real meaningful business model for the services that they're providing. And quite frankly, as an investor, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you want to be actually confident that what you're building is going to generate profit and returns and those kinds of things. So, but it is, you know, a significant shift for a lot of players in the market who have been building solely for growth. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's challenging uh, to pivot from growth at all costs to focusing on unit economics. So it is definitely challenging. And I think it's been interesting here at Web Summit having conversations with investors, et cetera, whereas, and I'm sure I'm telling you what you already know, whereas two years ago, you know, fintech was the flavor of the month and everybody was describing themselves as a fintech in some description. Um, now it's AI. <laughs> Everybody's AI. Um, and as soon as you say fintech to a large number of investors, their faces are just like, yeah, no, we don't do fintech. Um, there seems to be a little bit, if anything, kind of a bias against fintech at the moment, which is interesting. And whether that, you know, the pendulum will swing back or kind of be a bit more balanced because there is a lot of value, I think, in the market to be created. Um, and if you build the business on solid foundations, there is a strong argument for investment. So, interesting time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> How are you positioning eGaze in these economic headwinds or in this time? Well, we're very lucky um, in that we bootstrapped the business to date. Um, and, you know, that is pretty much our intention going forwards. We are going, we are launching a private coin sale, um, but not looking to give away, give away or sell equity at this point. Um, and the business model is robust that enough that we can do that, um, which obviously I think puts us in a, in a good position, um, particularly as even though we have not raised any external capital, we're already post revenue and things like that. So it's a very different game to many businesses two years ago who were like, oh, you have an idea, we're gonna raise $300 million. Um, so hopefully that positions us well um, in the kind of new market reality. Do you think your experience within Vintech will be transposable to what you're doing at Heedays, or is it more the way that you run a business that will help you be successful with it? I think it's a bit of both. So I think it helps, um, obviously, having had the experience um, at PayPal. And so at my last job at PayPal, I ran Central East Europe, Middle East, and Africa, so yeah. 110 markets and some quite challenging regulatory environments and things like that. So there was a fair amount of complexity in that business. In eGates, having multiple services and managing multiple providers has a lot of inherent complexity. Um, so I think that obviously helps. Equally, having both 
worked in very large, very successful businesses, but equally twice now I've grown scale-ups from either Series A or Series C beyond. Um, so hopefully that is experience that helps to kind of set the process and structure at e-gates for success. And you mentioned the regulatory complexity. Would you say that this right now is more complex than it was back then? Because, or is there because there's a lack of regulation, it's more a free-for-all kind of? Maybe it's just, well, I think it, there is... I think it's it certainly that lack of regulatory clarity um, brings uncertainty, particularly on the side of customers. Yeah. And that's one of the things that eGate seeks to solve for customers is we we take that onus of compliance away from them. Um, so it is in a certain sense an advantage for us that, you know, that is one of our selling points is it's a simple simple integration and you leave the compliance issues to us yeah. we will ensure that we are fully compliant with your local regulations and particularly you know as many of these businesses are serving customers in a lot of different geographies so being able to kind of take that onus off of their shoulders is seen as a real benefit um that being said i think everyone in the market would appreciate a bit more clarity <laughs> So that, you know, you're building things and you know, you know, you can plan your roadmap knowing what it is that you're building for. Because at the moment we're building with a lot of flexibility in order to be able to to adjust as things kind of solidify more. But it is, you know, that that brings a cost. Yeah, there's a lot of education needed uh, on the regulator side. Oh my goodness, yes. And again, that is something I was explaining to someone here, um, even at PayPal back in the day. And um, with the markets that I looked after, uh, many of the regulators we de- dealt with had absolutely no background in payments, not much background in technology. And so, you know, trying to explain to them how a cloud-based transaction, which was what PayPal was, worked. And no, we couldn't store your data in your market because it's in the cloud. Um, and those kinds of, you know, so it, that, again, is a process I am somewhat sadly familiar with. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it's a challenge in almost every market today that the regulators are grappling with things that they don't understand terribly well. Um, and they, they're seeking, and I say this again from some of my experience at PayPal, I think, you, you know, with European regulations like PSD2, the MIF, et cetera, um, you know, the big player saying Visa and MasterCard were in lobbying hard with and unsurprisingly the regulations as they were drafted tended to favor the incumbents um, and so it would be interesting to see in some of the newer areas where players like Visa MasterCard the banks have virtually no expertise themselves so how that's going to shake out it may actually be in the benefit or in the favor of businesses that were built on blockchain really actually can understand and use the technology better than say a legacy player so it'll be interesting to see how yeah, it evolves jury still out or yes exactly i i you know i'd love to believe that innovation will serve us all well but i do have some hard known experience places like paypal you know, i was explaining to someone the other day there's really annoying pop-ups that come up during the checko flow where you have to put in you know two fa that was devolved to my Visa and MasterCard, and they pushed hard for that to be in the PSD2 standards. Um, whereas PayPal argued from an outcomes base, we were able to deliver a much better outcome in terms of reduced fraud with far less friction for the, but the regulator wanted to 
prescribe exactly what the mechanic was. And so now we all have these stupid pop-ups. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'd like to believe that we'll end up in a, in a wonderful world, but it'll be interesting to see exactly how it plays out. Back to the Web Summit, and I think something you're very passionate about is women in leadership, right? <laughs> women in fintech, diversity in general? Yes, I mean, yeah, I, I think diversity in general for sure, um, and fintech and tech more broadly, um, having now worked in a variety of different um, businesses in different geographies, um, it's, it's still saddening to see the small number of women represented, be it in leadership or sometimes in the broader yeah. employee population. Even here at, at Web Summit, when you look at who's walking around, um, I wouldn't say it's an even gender split. Um, still. Uh, <laughs> Very close, though. I got a press release from Web Summit yesterday that it was 43%. We really? Oh, that's interesting. So maybe we're, we are over-indexing on men at the E-Gates booth then. <laughs> maybe that's it, yeah. I guess crypto is maybe more male. More male, yes, exactly. Which is, that's interesting to know because, yeah, my, my perception was that it wasn't, that they weren't as close as that. So that, that makes me feel a bit better. But I agree. There's still a lot to be done, right, when it comes to diversity or women in leadership positions. I know here they spend a fair amount of time and attention to it yes well and i think it, 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 it for me it really does come down to that diversity more broadly um and i was explaining to someone yesterday um that i i think one of the challenges for women in technology or traditionally male dominated businesses is a lot of women feel like they have to act like a man in order to be accepted in that environment but that actually kind of denigrates the values the whole point of diversity is you have people with different points of view and so if you're having to make yourself into something that you're not you're kind of denigrating and i said yeah women is one example people of color or all those kinds of things um, and where you feel like you're having to take a you know square peg stick it in a round hole you're kind of not only doing yourself a disservice but you're actually doing your business a disservice because it's not that diverse if everybody's having to play the game. Um, and I think that then means on both sides of that equation, there has to be a recognition of the value of diversity of thought. Yeah. Um, in whatever, you know, whether that's gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, whatever, um, and an acceptance to, to kind of recognize that value and let it have a place at the table kind of thing. And, and then having the willingness to stand up and be different. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's unfortunately not a silver bullet. I don't think it's something that changes overnight. Um, but I think increasingly the data is showing it does bring real value in terms of shareholder returns. And particularly if you're in a consumer business, women are, uh, I'm sorry to say, the majority of the population. <laughs> we are 51%. And when you look at things like offline purchases, we're 80% of the decision makers. So if your product is being designed exclusively by men, you're probably missing a trick. Um, so, you know, it, there is a very strong, this isn't just about sunshine and flowers. And this is, there is a real commercial rationale and need to be ensuring that there is a variety of voices at the table that reflect your customer base to be building and delivering services that are relevant to them. But you also see VCs who invest less in female founders. Oh, dear God, yeah. Do you think that the current economic situation or the change of appetite for investing in a certain type of business will help in the favor of maybe women because the strategy i mean aggressiveness yeah. let's just link that to males right it, i mean that's what vcs in the past invested into now that it's changing it's more around okay profit uh, and make sure you have sustainable business which is maybe more female trade i, I mean it would be lovely 
it would be lovely if that were true. Yeah. Um, because again, the data, if you look at the data, and I always like looking at the data, um, it does, you know, typically returns are better when you have either a mixed um, kind of founder group and, and female entrepreneurs tend to be more risk averse than their male counterparts. Yeah. So they're unlikely to take their VC check and go and, I don't know, buy a speedboat or whatever it is. Um, but actually, again, if you look at the most recent data, there were some that was released, I think last week or the week before, that proportion of funding going to female founders is actually falling at the moment. Is it? Yeah, from all, I mean, it was only 2% to start with, so it's, it doesn't, there's not much further for it to fall. So that was kind of disheartening to see, but my sense, well, my understanding or when I was reading that data, the, the hypotheses around what sat behind that was A, um, we're actually seeing the diversity within VCs themselves fall. A lot of women are walking away from VC investing at the moment, and they weren't that many of them to start with. Um, and then there's a that risk aversion on the investment side is, it seems to be demonstrating itself as we invest in people we know and we've invested in these guys before, so we'll continue to invest in these guys, and we invest in people who look like us, so we'll con continue to invest with white guys who went to our schools and all those fun things. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of a retrenching to type. So I, I'd love to believe that it were true that we would see more investment going towards um, either entirely female-founded or more gender-balanced teams, but unfortunately the, date, the most recent data I've seen doesn't necessarily suggest that's the case. So, again, slightly depressing. Well, at least you are still part of the seed stuff. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, no, exactly. And it, I think, it, it, again, I think it does matter to have those diverse voices. Um, so at uh, Moby's Income and Growth, where I sit on the board, I'm also chair of the investment committee. So all the investment decisions have to come through me and the rest of the board. Um, so being able to ask questions like, wow, this founder team is entirely male. Yeah. Wow, that's astonishing. Um, you know, those kinds of, so I think you know, if the more women who are in the room making the decisions, obviously that's that's hopefully for the best. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll keep fighting the good cause. Yeah. Right? No, well, I, I mean, well, I mean it, it, for me, it's not even just about, oh, we need more women, but it, it you know, again, the data shows it delivers better shareholder returns. Yeah, so from an investor perspective, this isn't about ticking a box. This is actually going to give us better returns. It's crazy if people have it right in front of them if they see the results that they still don't pick up on it, right? Because they're hard-headed. Probably male. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you said it, not me. <laughs> no, true. Uh, thanks, Sarah. Great to have you. No, thank you for having me. Enjoy and, the rest of the show. And you as well. I, let's let's hope I don't get lost again. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a big stand, so I'm sure you'll yes, find your way. Yes, it's true. Yes. That is the North Star of the event. Just kidding. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. In the second part of today's episode, our Chief Growth Officer David Burks is joined by Emily Tate, Managing Director for Mind the Product, the world's largest community of product people. Prior to joining Mind the Product, Emily spent over 10 years in product leadership as a consultant with Pivotal Labs and product manager in the travel industry. She started her career managing software solutions for airlines before taking her experience to the traveler side of the journey as the product manager for a leading travel management app, Tripcase. Emily, who has been listed as one of the 52 women making an impact in product management, is passionate about the craft of product management and loves talking about new ways to make products people love. So, uh, welcome, Emily. How have you found the Web Summit so far? Web Summit is massive. Uh, I've never been before, so it's been it's been exciting to see this many people interested in tech and all in one space to talk about what's new. 
Yeah. It's, uh, I was amazed the first time for myself here and amazed how the sheer size of it. It's, uh, it's pretty, pretty big, pretty vast. So, uh, yeah, but it's great to see so many people in one space collaborating. Um, so you are the managing director of the world's largest product community. So could you just give us a, an overview of um, Mind the Product? Yeah, Mind the Product is a community of product managers all around the world. Um, we aim to bring product managers together to further the craft. So helping people with personal development, helping teams upskill, and then just helping to have the conversation around what is product management in tech today. It's constantly changing. Um, and so we want to help people figure out what is the right thing to do in this role right now. Yeah. And, and is that via, so the community uh, has grown from 25 to 200,000, but um, how, how is that collaboration driven? Is it a face-to-face, online events? Is there, is there multiple channels? All of the above. So we focus on content. So we have a website that we publish articles, podcasts, um, you know, deep dives every single day. We have a community, which is a, a network of free meetups all around the world called Product Tank. Um, we have conferences, so our biggest one is in London. So we host about 1,800 people uh, at the Barbican in London to come together for a day of learning. Uh, and then we do training. So we'll do kind of hands-on uh, training with the you know, curriculum and we can take individuals or we can take teams through to help upskill their product skills. So, so is that the commercialization of it from where it's gone from a community to a commercial entity? Is that how you really focus on in terms of the, the sales side of what you do, selling training products, selling the events, like how, how does that bit work? Yeah, effectively it started from the meetups and um, they we want to keep them free always. Um, but basically as the network grew and as we needed to support the community more, we started the conferences and then the training basically to subsidize the free portions of our business, which is the content and the community. Okay, okay. So it's very much the, the commercial side of it is helping facilitate it to, to more people yes. get involved, grow the community organically. Yes. Or it's got to be subsidized somewhere, hasn't it? <laughs> of, of course, like many things. Um, so, as I mentioned, 25 people to 200,000. How, how did that journey, sort of how many years has that journey taken? What did you do? Tips, like how do you build a community out to that size? Yeah, I think uh, the fact that it started out so organically, I think helped it grow. So um, kind of the 25 people in London was just a need of product people to meet each other. And that was about 12 years ago. Um, and then as the community grew, a couple of people moved out of London and said, oh, I'm really gonna miss this product tank community. And the founders said, well, why don't you start a product tank in your city? And that's how the network started. Um, and then it took off fairly quickly. So um, I should say fairly quickly. It was slow and then really fast, yeah. <laughs> the classic uh, hockey stick curve. Yeah. So um, I actually started as a community member. Um, I found Mind the Product uh, during about the second conference that they hosted in London um, and realized I would like one of these product communities in Dallas, which is where I'm from originally. Yeah. Um, and so we started a product tank in Dallas and I think we were about city number 30. Um, I started that in 2015, I believe. Um, and then by the time I joined Mind the Product full time in 2018, we were at about 100 cities. And then within the next year and a half, we were at over 200 cities. So it, it went from growing a little bit at a time to all of a sudden just an explosion um, right before the pandemic effectively. <laughs> right, okay. So the pandemic arrives and I guess 
the online nature then takes off. So you probably get more collaboration with a wider spread of communities. Is that how you so, navigated it? Yeah, so most of our, uh, you know, before the pandemic, most of our interactions were in person. Actually about 95% of our business was in person. Um, obviously we had to shift that during the pandemic. And so we um, created a membership program to kind of help keep the funding going. We, um, a lot of the meetups moved online. Some of them just kind of went quiet for a while. Um, and then we shifted our conferences and our training to online things. Um, we started coming back to some of the in-person pieces in at the end of 2021 and end of 2022. Um, the thing that's been really interesting is in-person events are starting to come back, as you can clearly see here, um, but not back as quickly as, he, as it was or not to the same level as it was before the pandemic. Um, but the interest in the digital events has definitely declined as people have kind of had the Zoom overload, uh, the virtual overload. So I think that, um, and then of course, there is just so much content out there these days, um, which is I think a really good thing that there's so many people sharing their knowledge, sharing their learnings. Um, so it's really just kind of figuring out how do we best serve the community at any given time. Um, right now, we're, we are pushing more back into some of the in-person events while figuring out basically how do we make sure that the content that we're doing digitally is in a format that is the right length, the right tone, the right depth of knowledge for product managers at this point. So I had this question at the end, but I'll bring it in now because it's just on the, on the, the theme. So artificial intelligence, um, I heard a, a talk earlier and it was anybody can learn anything anywhere in the world right now through AI. Is that a, a competitor now to what you're doing or how are you harnessing that if it isn't? I think, um, I don't think that it is necessarily like changing what the internet has been in terms of learning anything. Um, in fact, in some ways it may be a little bit, like I think AI has so many powers an interface is not one of them. And so people have to know what they're trying to learn in order to learn it from AI. Yeah. Whereas with, you know, opinion, blogs and communities and courses, people can say, okay, I'm interested in this subject and then let experts tell them what they need to know about that subject. So I don't think that AI is an existential threat in that way. Um, but I do think that there's opportunity to be able to kind of put AI layers on top of the learning material um, to help people be able to kind of more easily access the things that they don't know are there. Um, you know, we have, we, we have over 2,500 articles on our website that have, you know, coming from 2010 and beyond, there is a wealth of knowledge out there, but it can be hard for people to know exactly where to start if they're trying to figure things out about product management or trying to look into things. So I think that there is opportunity within AI to help surface some of that. Okay. Okay. Um, so 2022, you joined the Pandemic finally. Um, how did that come about and was it synergy culture based or was it, um, was it, they were very interested in you and you did the whole, you know, dating thing. What was, uh, how, how did that come about? I think it did start from just some, some general conversations. So Pendo is a partner that we had worked with for a long time with mine, the product, they had sponsored our conferences. We had been in touch around, you know, we, you know, utilized some of their content and some of our offerings. Um, and. I've always really respected Todd Olson, the CEO, as a product person himself. So mm -hmm. he started off as a product guy who then built a company for product managers. Yeah. Um, so when the conversation started, it was basically like, okay, what could this be? Um, and effectively, Pendo is a product that helps product managers do their job better. 
but people can't use Pendo if they don't know how to do product management well. And that's what we do is we help people learn how to be better product managers. And so it's a little bit of a weird acquisition because we're not a SaaS product that's just going to be integrated into another SaaS product. Um, but effectively, it was a market building play. So we can kind of help introduce Pendo as a brand. We can help make more good product managers, um, which then translates into a bigger market for Pendo to sell into. Yeah, you can see the clear synergies there, how you explain it. I mean, you've got the... You've got the customer base, right? You're engaging with the customer base at a very early stage. And uh, there you go. There's the uh, clear round of fence to, to the sale there. Yeah, and I do think there's another aspect as well, which is um, Pendo's not looking at it cynically as like, oh, here's a big honeypot of people we can just go prospect into. Um, actually, Pendo's first goal is just to invest in the product community. Um, and so I think that that also helps that it's been approached with the right mindset the, the right respect for the community. Um, you know, I, we had our, our second conference since being acquired um, in London in October, and I had a couple of longtime Mind the Product uh, you know, fans and, and community members that said, you know, I really expected this to become much more, you know, much less old Mind the Product and much more Pendo, and I haven't felt it change all that much, which I think is actually a really great yeah, a really great thing. We've been able to kind of weave the brands in, find the spots where it makes sense for us to collaborate together. Um, so we've kind of co-produced some online training courses that we put out for free um, around topics like AI for product managers, um, product basics, product led. Um, so helping people understand these topics um, kind of co-branded together, but then have our own, uh, you know, kind of the, the Pendo story and the Mind the Product story also existing separately. No, it's it's clever, and I think that that sensitive nature of how that that is done is the key to the success. Because if it isn't like say your community when they turn up to an event and they're just getting sold out, they're just they're just going to switch off. Where if you if you handle it really sensitively, it actually harnesses the power more and makes them more affiliated with both brands. So uh, I think you've done a great uh, great job there. Um, just moving into the fintech area. Um, What's your experience been in sort of fintech in the in the past twelve months from a, a product perspective? Fintech in particular, I think, has had really interesting product thinking come about. So, particularly with the neo banks, and um, you know, and I will say it heavily in the UK neo banks. Um, one of our kind of longtime friends of mine, the product is Neilan Paris from Wise, um, and he actually spoke at our conference last month about the last 10 years of WISE and, and you know, from the TransferWISE journey into now and how they have reevaluated their product principles. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's one of those cases where you see that product management and product principles are similar across whatever industry you're applying them to. Um, but they really show power when you're in highly regulated, highly complex, difficult industries where you can see that having people who understand how to talk to customers, how to um, evaluate the different opportunities, how to kind of manage this vast ecosystem, um, bringing all of that together as product people can help fintech kind of excel above many other industries. Um, yeah. Yeah, because it's going, you know, the, it's going against traditional banking industry in many ways. It's got 99% of the, the customer base, which says to me there's lots of opportunity, but there's also a lot of regulation, red tape to, to navigate. Yes. And it's in the creative spirit of technology, which is going to do that. Um, 
So with that, sort of moving forward in terms of trends that are, that are coming, we, we see we see lots around AI, of course, uh, to, today at the conference. What trends do you see coming in sort of fintech space over the next 12 months? Anything that you see like a clear vision with or anything of interest that you may be working on? I don't know if I have a... a any more of a nuanced vision on what the future of fintech is than than someone actively working in it day to day. Um, I think what I have within fintech is a lot of optimism. Um, I think that there is still so much untapped space to help bring banking and bring finance into the, you know, in what is, are we in the 21st century these days? I don't even know anymore. Um, but yes, bring, bring it into modern times and help people, um, I think not only just be a spot for people to put their money, but to also be partners in helping people understand how to manage their money better. Um, And I think that the traditional banks have always kind of claimed to do that, but it was, you know, I don't know, what's the word? It basically locked up. Like if you weren't a high wealth individual, you didn't have access to a lot of that. And I see so many new things in FinTech coming out that not only have the, the, traditional management of it that are also providing tools for the average person to understand how to manage their finances better so yeah i think you hit on a great point there around the underserved underprivileged access to digital services and what fintech can do and and something that's feel quite passionate about even after you know hearing hearing today how how many people are underserved and it really you know the, the education piece you know um people in the US living paycheck to paycheck like trying to trying to leverage those funds on a daily basis rather than a monthly basis but how we're educating them to use those funds I think we well I think that the banks have a huge part to play in that I think the leaders within the fintech space have a huge part to play in it and all of us do but I think bringing those products and bringing those services to that population it's a game changer isn't it for communities for, for humanity for so many things um, so I, I agree. I think that is the exciting optimism around with fintech um, in in the coming uh, the coming months for sure. Um, in terms of uh, successes with uh, mining products, is there any sort of high profile successes products that have come out of it through collaboration in the community uh, that you can share with us? Um, I, I mean, I'll say like. One of my one of my favorite successes is the fact that we still exist. So, um, as I mentioned, ninety five percent of our business was in person events at the start of twenty twenty, um, and being able to kind of pivot the business during the pandemic and really see uh, the community, frankly, come and come and support us um, was very heartwarming um and really made us realize that this is why we're doing this this is the community we're here to support and they're supporting us back um so being able to make our way through that time and then come back out even stronger and building a stronger business than we had before um has been really great um recently i would say i I mentioned some of the collaborations we've done Uh, we actually have a a new free online course that we've partnered with Pendo and Google Cloud um, on AI and product management. And so that actually, I think, is launching this week. Um, so people can check that out for free. Yeah. Uh, you can find it at mindtheproduct.com and we'll have plenty of things pointing you there. <laughs> no, that's great. We'll uh, we're sure to put that in the, uh, the notes. Um, in terms of, I guess, just turning back onto the Web Summit, um, obviously you've got your um, talk tomorrow. 
on um, SAS Monster, is it? Yes. Um, what's uh, what's what's that about then? How how's that uh, what's that planning out? Yeah, so I'm actually um, just hosting the stage tomorrow. Oh, okay. So yeah. so I'll be kind of uh, guiding the conversation throughout the day, introducing the speakers, and making sure that uh, we have lots of great topics. Okay. And is there anything you're looking forward to over the next couple of days? Any any talks that you're going to? Anything, or is it just the collaboration and meeting people? Mostly the collaboration and meeting people. The the talks that I think are you know, the talks I have on my list to watch are far too many. Uh, so there there have been some really good ones already, and I'm looking forward to seeing more tomorrow. Good. Well, um, thanks a lot for your time. Uh, appreciate your insights. Um, we'll be sure to put the um, the AI uh, course on the notes and wish you all the best uh, for the rest of the conference. Great. Thank you all so right. much. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of In Check with Fintech. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and leave us a comment below. We'll be having more industry leaders soon, so don't forget to subscribe as well in order to keep updated with the latest episodes of our podcast.